Good evening. It's 9.30, and this is Quietly Yours. Tonight, we have a dark story, which will take us into the mind, or rather, heart, of a killer. We'll call it, What the Heart Wants. Enjoy. I heard this story once. They say it's true, but don't they always? It's one of those friend-of-a-friend things. No one will ever really know. There's probably people all over the world telling the same story as if it happened to someone they know. That's why I never believed it. Not then, anyway. It's the story of a man with a bad heart. Literally a bad heart. I'm not being poetic. He needed a transplant, and after years on the list, his luck started to change and they found him a donor. So he has the surgery, everything goes well, and he recovers. His body doesn't reject the organ. As far as open-heart surgery goes, it's a happy ending. But within a few months of the surgery, he starts having dreams. Weird dreams. Dreams about terrible things. And as time goes on, they just get more and more vivid, and he starts to realise that he's dreaming of murdering someone. He starts to panic. He thinks it's the heart, that he's somehow seeing the donor's memories, that he's reliving the organ's past life. Did his donor murder someone? Is he going to be haunted by this for the rest of his life? It's really weighing on his mind, as you'd expect. But of course, no one takes him seriously. The doctors say he's developing an anxiety disorder, so they prescribe him some anti-anxiolytics, put him in CBT, and assure him that, given enough time and effective treatment, the dreams will go away and he'll continue living his life, enjoying everything just as he did before. He thinks they're just brushing him off that they're not taking him seriously. And by the time anyone does take him seriously, well, it's too late. He's behind bars, awaiting trial. Murder charges. Three of them. And he still blames the heart. Tells everyone that the heart made him do it, that he's not a murderer, he's just been given the heart of a murderer. And that's still his story to this day. Wherever he is, if he existed, which he probably didn't, I've always had a bad heart, you see. It's a congenital defect, so it's been there since I was born. I've always known about it, and I've always known that one day, they'd open me up, rip out my heart, and give me someone else's. I know it's a pretty standard procedure. They've done it hundreds of thousands of times. They're pretty much as safe as they can be. And it's better than keeping a faulty organ. Still, you tell a kid that you're going to take out their heart, and... Well, you can see how a story like that might stick with an impressionable child with a major surgery ahead of him. I was about eight years old when they found a match for me. That's good. That's amazing, actually. 
I have a rare blood type, so the odds of finding a match for an adult are pretty slim. You can imagine the odds of finding a match for a child. But, against all odds, I waited only eight years. I got my new heart, the surgery went off without a hitch, and my recovery went well. For the first time in my life, I didn't have to feel like everyone was looking at me as though I'm some sort of porcelain doll. Finally, I was just a regular child, with a regular life, and a killer scar to freak out my friends. And that was... Well, that was pretty much the end of the story. For the time being, at least. And then, I hit my late teens. <sighs> Things started to go wrong. The anti-rejection drugs stopped working properly. I got three major infections in the space of six months. My body was rejecting the heart, and it felt like my whole body was just giving up and eating itself from the inside out. Well, several consultations later, they break the news. I need another heart. Again. A third heart and I'm not even 20. Will it end there? Will that be it? How many hearts will I burn through by the time I'm 70? I wasn't even scared of the procedure. I wasn't even thinking about finding a donor. Mostly I just felt guilty. Guilty that someone had died just so I can reject their heart and waste their gift. <sighs> but that... Well, that's not the point. The point is, I had the surgery, I got my second heart, third heart, and I tried to get on with my life. The recovery went well, as well as can be expected anyway. It was harder than the first time, longer, but then it was a much more psychologically draining experience this time, all things considered. But I made it through, and I got back to full health. And then the dreams started. It started with quick flashes. I couldn't even tell what they were, not really, but they felt so... Well, they felt so angry. I would wake up covered in sweat and panting, like waking up from a nightmare, only you don't remember what you were dreaming about. You just know that it was a nightmare. But as time went on, the dreams became more clear, more vivid. There were clear moments, flashes of action, my hands squeezing. For years now, I'd been having CBT sessions to handle anxiety. It wasn't too bad, not really. It wasn't crippling or anything, but it was there. A little niggle at the back of the mind. How can you not be at least a bit anxious when there's always a small chance that you might drop dead at any moment? Well, now I was having these dreams and they were awful, but it didn't worry me too much because, well, Anxiety dreams are nothing new. Now they were just digging deeper into my subconscious, pulling out old stories from childhood and playing them out against me in my sleep. It was horrible, but it was just a nasty side effect of my recovery. But time passed and they didn't stop. They grew more and more vivid. And I know what anxiety dreams are, your teeth fall out, you're running away, you're falling. You're not knocking out someone else's teeth. You're not the one chasing someone. You're not the one pushing. This was different. 
these dreams, every night I would slip into sleep and I would have these vivid visions of killing, brutally taking someone's life with my own hands and then, and then I would wake up sweating, heart racing, and I'd like it. That's why it scared me so much, because I liked it. I told my therapist all about it, at least to begin with. She said exactly what you'd expect. Anxiety, nightmares, just aspects of my subconscious swimming to the surface. But they can't be. They're too real. And I can feel it. I can feel that they're changing me. Well, the problem is, there's an elephant in the room here. Because if it's like that story, if that really happened, and if it's happening to me, well then does that mean that these dreams, did they really happen? Can memories live in the heart somehow? It sounds ridiculous, but I had to know. I tried going about it the nice way, but I just ended up arguing with his wife. I think it spooked her, me showing up on her doorstep. I suppose it is weird. But I tried to explain, tell her that I just, I needed to see his things. But that didn't work, of course. She just slammed the door in my face. As if that was gonna stop me. I was determined to get to the truth. So I watched and I waited until I knew she was out for the night. And I let myself into the house. That wasn't hard. Key under the plant pot. I searched through all his things. Everything I could get my hands on, at least. I didn't really know what I was looking for. But I found it. They were in a taped-up box, labelled Genealogy. Brilliant, really. If anyone finds it, if anyone bothers to open it, well, it won't matter, will it? It's easily explained. It's a genealogy project, searching for distant relatives. That's why you have all these photos. All these photos of strange women hidden in a box in your office. There's photos of men too, but they're just planted here in case someone does find them. I know because I see it every night and it's always women. And if Judy ever finds this box, well, that's how I'll explain it where. They're just distant cousins, nieces, whatever. They're not the women he's murdered. The first one was Emma Nelson. She'd been out with friends and had a bit too much to drink, by all accounts. They lost track of her halfway through the night and spent hours trying to track her down. It was only the next morning, when she still hadn't turned up, that they called the police. The hunt began, and the next day they found her body in a dumpster in some gross car park somewhere. She'd been strangled to death. I'm sure the police tried their best, but they didn't seem to get anywhere. Then, a few months later, came Erin Miles. It was pretty much the same MO, really. She'd had too much to drink, and she'd ended up in some alley down the back of some closed club, and that's where he tried to strangle her. I guess he wasn't careful enough this time, though, and must have caught someone's attention, because a guy wanders down the alley and sees what's going on. So the killer panics, let's go, flees. The guy didn't get a good look at him, wasn't able to describe him very well or anything. And it didn't make much difference to Erin. She was alive, sure, but the damage was done. She wouldn't regain consciousness and she died three days later in hospital. They connected it with the previous murder. 
They were so similar, committed within such a small distance of one another, the link was undeniable. As you can imagine, that was like a gift for the local press, it even made national news. Serial killer caught in the act. And that just caused a bit of a panic. The idea that there's some madman on the loose, killing off drunk women. The third one was Julie Holland. Again, she'd been out drinking, and he found her walking home alone in the middle of the night, barely keeping herself in a straight line. We don't know the exact details of what happened next. We just know that her body was found buried under old cardboard in an alley behind a restaurant, strangled to death. This time, though, he'd driven halfway across the country to a town he picked at random. Good idea, but it didn't really work. People made the link anyway, and that made the whole thing even worse. Now it's a nationwide panic, serial killer on the loose. So after that, he tried to stop. Well, that's what I think he was doing. There's just a 12-month break after that. And then, well, with the next one, he got a little creative. Again, we'll never really know exactly what happened, but I can just about piece together the details. Blair Brady was 19 and looking to earn some extra money while studying English literature and so she responded to an ad looking for a babysitter. Then, after driving all the way over to the couple's house, she knocks on the door, only to find that it's the home of an elderly widow with no children and no idea what she's talking about. Thinking she's been pranked, she gets back into the car and heads home. It would be the last time she was seen alive. I think the odds are pretty good that the whole babysitter thing was just a clever way of luring a girl out into the open. He was probably parked nearby, waiting, and when she got back in her car and drove away, he probably followed her and waited until they were in the middle of nowhere to make his move. I don't know exactly what that move was, but one way or another, he got her to stop the car and he went to work. She died sometime between 11 and midnight. She'd been dragged away from the road and deep into the trees, out of sight. There were signs of a fight but it wasn't enough. There was evidence that she'd been strangled, like the others, but it wasn't the cause of death. She'd been stabbed five times, twice in the chest, once in the abdomen, once in the arm, which might have been a defensive wound, but the coroner couldn't say for certain, one way or the other. Finally, a deep wound in her neck, she had ultimately died from asphyxiation after breathing in too much of her own blood from the neck wound. It had been quick and brutal. They found her body a month later after a huge manhunt. She'd been wrapped in plastic and buried in a shallow grave covered by branches. He was clearly taking no chances this time. He didn't want anyone to find this girl, but if they did, they would find a girl who died from stab wounds in a completely different location to any of the other murders, and no one would connect the dots. And it worked. I'm the only one who knows he was behind it. There's pictures of two more girls in the box, but I haven't been able to find as much information on them. One of them is called Anna Gill. A missing person report was filed almost two years ago, and that's about all I've been able to find out. I don't know where she's buried, 
but they probably won't find her. Same goes for the other girl. I don't even know her name. I haven't been able to find so much as a missing person report. I wonder why. I assume that it ended with those five, but I can't be sure. I think he'd have kept pictures, though, if there'd been any more girls. I didn't really know what to do with any of this information. Sure, you're probably thinking, go to the police. But it's not as simple as that. I didn't want all of that attention. And besides, it's not like he's going to kill again, is it? He's dead and it's over. Digging up the past just causes problems for everyone left behind. Better to leave everything as it is. Or maybe not. But that's how I justified it to myself. That's tough though, when the dreams won't stop. And now they're worse. It's like putting a face to a name. Now I know who they are, and every night I hear them scream. I see the terror on their faces. I tried to forget about it and get on with my life. But after a while, I figured out how to make the dreams go away. It wasn't intentional, and not at first. I was driving home on a remote road, just trees and fields on either side of me, and I could see a girl walking not too far ahead of me. Well, I stopped. I asked her if she was okay, since it's a pretty odd place to be out taking a stroll. She said she'd been at a party at a house a couple of miles away, as she'd gotten into a big fight with a friend, she stormed off and ended up having to make her own way home, in the middle of nowhere. I offered her a ride, of course, and she accepted. We chatted a bit, and everything was normal. But before long, I was desperate for a bathroom break, so I pulled over by the side of the road and disappeared into the trees. And then I came back to the car to find her rummaging through my wallet with a wad of cash in her hand. I wasn't even that mad, not really, but she started freaking out and screaming at me, accusing me of being some kind of perv just picking up strange girls by the side of the road. I tried to calm her down, but I, I guess she took that the wrong way or something. I don't know, but she hit me hard, and then she just jumped out of the car, sprinting into the wilderness. I don't even know why I followed her. But for some reason, I did. Before either of us knew it, my entire weight came crashing down on top of her, and she hit the ground, hard. She tried to fight me off, and then, well, the next thing I know, she's on her back in the mud, and my hands are around her neck, and her eyes are staring lifelessly up at the sky, and that was it quick and simple and I didn't even realize it had happened I didn't even realize that I killed someone but now it was sinking in looking down at her body motionless I freaked out and I ran back to my car I drove home and then I well, I had the best sleep I've had in weeks. I even thought about going to the police, 
but God knows what might happen or what they might charge me with. And how would that be fair? It was an accident. And then they found her body. I was convinced I must have left some kind of evidence at the scene, something that would point to me. Every time there was a knock at the door, I would panic, jump to conclusions and assume it was the police. But it never was. And I started to accept that I was just being paranoid. And within a couple of months, I'd sort of forgotten about the accident, or at least pushed it to the back of my mind. Everything was more or less back to normal. And the dreams were back too. The second time it happened, it went more or less the same way. I was driving home and she was just there, walking by herself, just like the first time. I shouldn't have stopped, but I did. I shouldn't have offered a ride, but I did. She shouldn't have said yes, but she did. I don't know what I said or what I did that made her uncomfortable, but she seemed to pick up on the fact that something was wrong and started asking me to pull over. She said her house was nearby and she could get home quicker by cutting across one of the fields. That's a lie, of course. There's no houses for miles. But I played along and I pulled over. She got out of the car, heading off into one of the fields. I waited a few moments and then I got out of the car, slamming the door behind me. She heard, peered back and increased her pace. It wouldn't do her any good. It was time. I moved quickly towards her. She sped up again. So did I. And within just a few seconds, she was pinned beneath me with my hands around her neck. This time, I was aware of everything. The fear on her face. Her skin beneath my fingers. This time, I was able to watch and enjoy as the life slipped away from her. And then reality came crashing down. The body. What was I gonna do? If I just left it here? Well, they'd find it eventually. And they'd probably link it to the last girl. Was there somewhere I could hide her? Somewhere I could bury her? No, nowhere, and I couldn't stay here too long. I couldn't risk anyone stumbling across the body and me still being here. I had no choice, so I simply ran. It'd be fine. I didn't leave any evidence. At least I don't think I did. And I'd be more careful next time. <laughs> next time. I guess I'd already made up my mind by that point. The trick I came up with, well, I don't want to sound too full of myself, but it was quite brilliant. I knew I needed to travel, to make sure that I never did it in the same place twice. That was easy enough. Pick a place at random and drive there, through the most rural route that I could find, of course. The last thing I need is anyone pegging down my location by CCTV. After that, I picked a spot, a quiet road, one with enough traffic that Plenty of people come my way, but not one so busy that it's full of witnesses. I parked the car, 
opened it up and played my part well. Just a man, broken down by the side of the road, in need of a helping hand. Plenty of people stopped and asked if I needed help. Most of them weren't my type. I told them that I knew what I was doing, not to worry, and sent them on their way. A couple of them were exactly what I was looking for. Both driving, completely alone. That would be key. I asked if I could get a ride, and both of them shot me down. One said she'd be happy to drive to the nearest town and ask for help. The other just said no and sped off. It clearly wasn't working. They were all too savvy. No one wants to just climb into a car with a stranger. Everyone's too... suspicious. And that is when I conceived the best part of the plan. I needed to ease their suspicions, and I could do that so easily by playing on sympathy. And so, the next time, I went through the same process, picked a random town, find the perfect road, set my scene and wait, only this time with one clever addition. A set of heavy wooden crutches, one beneath each arm. It worked like a charm. Girls would just pass by when I was just some creepy guy by the side of the road, but now I had their sympathy. No one is gonna leave a cripple in distress by the side of the road. It only took an hour before I found one and climbed into her car. I made up some story and some location for her to drive me to, somewhere even more remote, just to make sure we stayed on empty roads. And then I sat back and enjoyed the ride, chatting with her, easing her into relaxing a bit. It wasn't difficult to gain her trust. And about 20 minutes into the drive, I couldn't let us drive too far away from my own car after all. About 20 minutes in, we were in the perfect secluded spot. So I insisted we stop for a desperately needed bathroom break. Well, she thought that was kind of funny and pulled up. I got out of the car and wandered a little into the trees, not too deep. I needed her to be able to see me so that I could lure her out on some pretense. I could pretend I'd found something, maybe. I hadn't really thought this part out. I couldn't have known where we'd stop. But in the moment, inspiration struck and I tried my hand at a little improv. I threw one of the crutches aside and fell to the ground with a loud, painful groan. Oh, it couldn't have worked better. She leapt from the car and ran across to help. She grabbed me by the arm and tried to help me up. I shifted my weight towards her and she tripped, falling to the ground. I apologized and then, as she was pulling herself to her feet, I swung around one of the crutches and hit her hard in the face. She fell to the ground again and I lifted the crutch high into the air, bringing it down forcefully onto her skull. Her body went limp and she collapsed into a heap. I lowered myself to the ground and rolled her over just as she regained consciousness. And then I reached into my pocket and pulled out the small five inch blade I'd been carrying. With nervously shaking hands, I lifted the knife and I plunged it as hard as I could. 
it hurt like punching a door. I think I hit a rib or something. I let out a cry of pain and then, oh, without thinking, I just I lifted it again and I stabbed a second time. That was enough. I wiped the blade clean and placed it and the cloth into a small plastic bag and returned it to my pocket. I wasn't taking any chances. I wanted to leave this scene as clean as possible. There was probably some kind of DNA left over. It'd be impossible not to leave anything. I just have to hope it's small enough amounts that none of it will be recovered. And if it is, well, as long as I remain free, there's nothing to match it against. It's about the best I can do. She'd finally stopped breathing after about two minutes. The wounds had been deep, directly to the chest, but there wasn't as much blood as you might expect. I suppose most of the bleeding was internal. I felt a twitch in my stomach, a small wave of nausea. This was more than strangulation, and it was going to take some getting used to. The next one was basically a step-by-step -step repeat. Pick a town, find the perfect road, grab the crutches and wait. I didn't want to use the knife this time, if possible. Keep it looking random. So when she approached me to help me up, I swung the crutch around and knocked her to the ground. And then I hit her hard with the end of the crutch. And then I hit her again and again and again. I hit her until her face was bloodied and she stopped moving. And then, in a stroke of genius, I raided her pockets and emptied her wallet. That ought to throw them off the scent. I would have to burn everything I'd taken, of course. Couldn't risk any of that being found. My method was working, and I decided to stick to it. But things got a little messy with the next one, and that is where it all started to go downhill. It's my own fault. I got too cocky. Too confident. It started as all the others did. I picked a town, found a road, set up the scene, and waited. And when the right girl showed up, I played my part. Then, when the car pulled over, I hobbled off into the trees, and I fell. I threw the crutch as far away from me as I could, and when she came over to help, I asked her to pass it to me. I was playing games, asking her to pass my crutch, just to get a little power kick, watching her hand it over with no idea what I'm about to do with it. It was twisted and it was fun, but it was a mistake. She walked over to the crutch and I felt a pause. What was it? What's happened? I glanced over and she was just stood there, looking down at the crutch. I followed her gaze to the floor, and there it was. The knife, lying right beside the crutch, having fallen from my pocket in the fall. Damn it! I moved quickly, but she reacted almost as fast as I did, running in the opposite direction. I grew closer and reached out, grabbing her by her hair and pulling. She screamed and stopped resisting while I held her hair in a tight bunch in my hand. I put an arm around her and dragged her backwards. And then her leg shot out, kicking me hard in the shin. I let go and she ran. I hurried after her, 
The next thing I knew, there was a sharp, intense pain in my face as the heavy crutch collided with my head and I fell to the floor. I got to my feet as quickly as I could and I lunged at her again. She spun around and a hot stinging spread across my arm as the knife in her hand sliced through my skin. It felt like my blood might literally boil. I was seeing red and I couldn't think straight anymore. She lunged again with a desperate stabbing motion, but she missed. I grabbed her arm, the one that held the knife, and I held it above both of our heads as our bodies struggled against each other. Oh, but it was no use. I was stronger. I pried the knife out of her hands, and then I pushed her away from me. I kicked her in the torso as hard as I could. She cried out as she crumpled and fell to the ground. I dropped to my knees beside her, and I brought my arms down forcefully, driving the blood into her abdomen, buried deep to the hilt. She didn't scream, not this time. Just a strange, stifled gasp. I stabbed again. And again. And again, I was angry, so angry, and I just wanted her to die, just die! It's like... a moment of bliss. Like everything has been put on pause. And there's just no one else in the world. There's just you and her. But there wasn't time. Not this time. I didn't have any time to waste. I had to, to do something. I, I had to do something. But, but what? My mind was racing. It was a mess. There was noise. Lots of noise. Had someone heard? No. No, they can't have heard. Someone would have been here to help already if they'd heard. And there's blood. So much blood. And it's not just hers. I'm bleeding badly from the cut on my arm. You can't even tell whose blood is whose. But the coroner will be able to. She fought back. She fought back good. They'll know that. Oh, she'll have bad bruising. Maybe a broken rib. Oh, there's too much information here. Enough for them to piece together everything. Oh, they can't see her body. I can't let them see her body. I can't let them ever find it. Oh, killing was one thing. I was getting good at the killing, but disposing of a body? Oh, that's something else. But it has to be done. And it has to be done quick. I was filled with adrenaline, and I could feel my pulse racing. I ran across to her car and ransacked every corner of it. There had to be something useful, and there was, in the back, a tent. Uh, not ideal, but better than nothing. I hurried back to the body and grabbed her by the arms, pulling her further into the trees. I needed to be out of view. I opened up the tent and I flattened it out on the ground, and then I dragged her body onto it and rolled it up as tightly as I could. I got in the car, reversed it off the road and as close to the trees as I could before dragging the body across and lifting it into the boot of the car. Once she was secured, I climbed into the driver's seat and paused. I closed my eyes for a moment and tried to slow my breathing. I had to think. I had to use my brain. Water. That would be the best place to get rid of her. Burying her would take too long, too high of a risk of being seen. 
I needed to get back to my own car first, so I pulled back onto the road and drove the way we came. Fifteen minutes later, I was parked beside my car and waited until I was certain there was no oncoming traffic. I stripped naked and put the bloodied clothes in the footwell of the car. I knew things could get messy when I started using the knife, so it made sense to keep a spare change of clothes. Thank God I had the forethought. Now I just needed a place to dump her. It needed to be somewhere remote, a route with no CCTV. That should be easy enough. It was a simple plan, dump her. Wander for an hour or two until I'm far away, and then call for a taxi and get back to my car. But what about her car? Maybe I could set it alight. Would that work? I don't know the first thing about cars. I'd have to dump it. Well, it's not ideal, but it's the best I could do. Right, that was it. A plan. A plan was in place. I took a deep breath. I felt sick. I was so nervous, but there was no time to waste. I started the car, pulled back into the road and set off. I'm not familiar with this area, but I have a vague idea. I like to study places for a day or so before I get the job. I knew there was a large lake not too far away and it seemed like as good a place as any. I had to hurry though. It'd be getting dark soon. I had to hurry. I don't really have any memory of the drive after that. I think my brain just sort of shut down from the stress, I suppose. I went into autopilot. I don't even know how long I was driving for. The next thing I remember was a bright flash and a loud bang, like multiple gunshots. And then the sick feeling returned to my stomach, but it wasn't nerves, it was weightlessness. We must have spun round three times before the car finally stopped. I banged my head hard on the roof and everything had gone fuzzy. I could feel warm blood dripping up my forehead. Up. Were we upside down? I could hear rain pounding against the car. No. I was screaming at myself. No. What were you doing? You should have been paying more attention. Was it even my fault? I don't know what happened. I tried to reach for the seatbelt to free myself, but my hands were shaking. I couldn't make them work properly. And then there's a light, a bright, intense light shining through the windshield and voices, people calling out to me. Are you hurt? How many of you are in there? Can you get out? I just wanted to scream at them, no. Leave me alone, go away. But it's too late. It's too late. They charged me with three counts of murder in the end. They put the pieces together. They knew about the first two. They knew I did it. Only there wasn't any evidence. They couldn't prove anything. But it didn't matter. The final three. Those they were confident in. Similar MO, no alibi those nights, and my bank statements showed petrol purchases that lined up with the long trips the days the murders happened. Jesus, I hadn't even thought of that. They found the knife, and they determined it was the same one used in the murders. It was all pretty straightforward when it went to trial. I never deluded myself that I was getting away with it. 
From the moment they wheeled me away on that stretcher, I knew I'd be spending the rest of my life behind bars. I didn't try to fight it. And it makes me mad. It's not fair. How could this be fair? I didn't ask for this. I didn't want to be like this. I was normal once. Just a normal kid. And this, this isn't me. It's him. Getting this heart was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I wish I'd never said yes. I wish he'd never died. I wish he'd never died and I'd have gotten someone else's heart instead. If I could go back, if I could go back to that day. It's still so clear in my mind. Burned into my brain like a branding iron. It was the look on my mum's face. She came into my bedroom with this empty, hollow look and the phone in her hand. And I knew right away that something was wrong. It's Judy, she said. There's been an accident. He'd been plastering the walls in the garage when he lost his footing on the ladder he was using and he fell. It wasn't a long fall, ten feet maybe, but it was one of those freak things. The wrong angle. He hit his head and lost consciousness instantly. They told us 12 hours later that he had little to no brain activity. He was dead. But his body kept going. Lucky me. A fresh heart, ready and waiting. And who could be a better match than my own father? I should have said no. I should have said no. They took me into theatre the next day. And I got my third heart. And now, here I am. Trapped within these four walls. And the whole world knows me as a cold-blooded killer. A cold, vicious killer with an insatiable bloodlust. <sighs> well... Like father, like son, I suppose. What a horrendous little story. I only hope our murder-prone protagonist has removed himself from the organ donor registry. Can memories be transplanted with a kidney, I wonder? I certainly hope not. I wouldn't want to jeopardise any of my more lucrative business arrangements. Well, anyway, if you enjoyed tonight's story, what the hell is wrong with you? But if you do want more, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or pretty much any podcast streaming platform. If we're not on your platform of choice already, let us know and we'll see what we can do. You can reach us via quietlyyours at daffodillies.co.uk or you can get in touch via Twitter, Instagram or Tumblr. Our handle across the board is quietly podcast. We've recently caved to demand from a large audience of over 65s and signed up for Facebook, so you can find us there too. Our website is daffodillies.co.uk slash quietlyyours. You can find all of our past episodes and whatnot there. We'd love to know what you thought of tonight's story, or which is your favourite so far, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. We don't bite. Until next time, I am quietly yours, and you are quietly mine.